Casey, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for for joining me. Uh, you're in you're in Australia, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm down in down in Sydney at the moment. Um, so I'm sitting here with my it's eight a.m. I've got my coffee. Um, happy uh, happy to be having a chat. So yeah. we're good. Appreciate it. Uh, so how do you <laughs> living in Australia? How do you how do you stay safe from all the uh, the spiders and snakes and anything else that wants to kill you out there? Uh, I mean, look, you, you, you grow up used to it. You know, the, um, the, the drop bears here, fortunately, they only attack tourists. So, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> now nah, look, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a thing that Aussies get asked a lot. I, I feel like, uh, Americans, Americans think about dangerous animals and stuff in Australia in, in the same way that Aussies think about like guns when we come to America for the first time, it's, it's like, you know, it's more the fact that the risk is unfamiliar. It kind sure. of freaks us out. And like, sure. You've got to either be like unlucky or, or doing something dumb to actually have a real problem, but it's sort of a similar kind of thing. So I don't know. We just, we just learn about that stuff from a young age and, and, and just mitigate it, which is kind of the same as a lot of risk. I think. I figured I'd ask. I've always been been curious and uh, never really get to sit no, down and talk I mean, with an Australian that much. So. No, most definitely. I think the um, you know the only thing that we're more we're we're better known for than the dangerous animals is is you know making crap up about dangerous animals <laughs> to, to to spin to people that aren't from Australia. So there is that too. <laughs> so uh, today I, I kind of want to talk about your your journey and your life, and I've done some OSINT on you. We'll, we'll see how well I did, um, but okay. you know, I just kind of want to talk about your your upbringing and, and getting into, you know, starting bug crowd and starting your own business. I know you've had some kind of businesses before that. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, getting into where you're at now. So kind of the, the journey sure. along the way. So uh, yeah, yeah, man. Let's do it. we'll start with a young age. So you, you, your parents are musicians, right? Your dad's a, a teacher, your mom's a musician. Um, uh, yeah. So, so my mom now is a, she actually went through and did her, um, her uh, master's in clinical psychology. She's an entrepreneur as well in that sense. Um, uh, these days, back in the day, she was, uh, you know, looking after myself and, and my sister. Um, but yeah, they, they, they're both musos to, to your point. They actually met on the road, which is kind of cool. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. And, and so when you're growing up, you, you have access to your dad's drum kit. Is that pretty accurate? Or how do you, how do you actually learn to play the drums? Yeah. So once he, I, I mean, it starts with, for me, and it's actually, I'm watching the same thing happen with my kids now, which is kind of cool. It, it starts off with, you know, pots and pans and kind of banging whatever's around um, just to see if there's interest when you're, you know, two or three, like that kind of, that kind of deal. Sure. Um, oh, look, you know, you're playing a drum kit just like dad and, and that whole thing. I, that's pretty much what I use photos of me doing that when I was little. Um, but then the interest seemed to stick. Uh, and then I wanted to get behind the kit. So, you know, started doing that. Then, you know, my dad started like putting deliberate time into, into teaching me, you know, rudiments and, and the different kind of like the primitives and the fundamentals of drumming. Um, and it kind of just went from there. Like, I think having like growing up in a musical family, you, you just, um, you always have it around. So like, regardless of what you end up doing, like do you end up playing something, do you end up just really appreciating music or writing or whatever else? It's just sort of something that's, you know, almost part of the environment um, as you, as you, as you're growing up. So it just becomes a bit of a part of you, I think. 
which is definitely, you know, what I feel happened to me. Yeah. And there's, there's some research out there, right. That as you're growing up, if you have a musical instrument in your hands, your, I think your cognitive abilities are, are better than uh, those without. Um, and I feel like, I don't know if it's just me being observant or, but I feel like there's a lot of musicians in the, the hacker space or the, the tech space. I don't know if there's a, a correlation there or not, but, uh, you know, it, it feels like there, there definitely could be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I nerd out on this one a little bit cause you, you, are not the first, first person to observe that. Um, there's, there's definitely, you know, a correlation between like musicians, you know, the, like the hacker scene, I think even the security scene, just in general, like people that, you know, interact with tech, but do it in a creative way. And they've got, you know, now in, in our domain, like this adversarial kind of mindset that they kind of bolt on top. Um, my theory on that is that, you know, like music is actually like math when you break it down. So there's, there's a component of it that's, that's really, really logical and really, really like scientific in a lot of ways. Um, that's not the side of it that most people ever see or get to interact with, but it's kind of the construct of what music is. So, you know, as, a, as, as, you know, people that like kind of, you know, learn that stuff growing up or, you know, it's, it's, if it becomes very much a part of who you are, you end up with this ability to think about the creative side and the human side of things, as well as the like very functional kind of mathematical, you know, almost computer science-y, um, side of things. Um, I think that's, that's part of where the crossover into security comes from. Like that's at a guess, but like, this is a, you know, it's, it's a conversation that I've had with folk in the industry, like it predates bug crowd. You know, it's like, wow, there's tons of bass players and tons of drummers and tons of, you know, keyboard players and, and whatever else we all seem to, you know, it's not so much that musicians gravitate to infosec. It's more that infosec has a lot of musicians in it. So it's like, okay, why is that? Is there a kind of a, a mental wiring thing that kind of draws us in that direction? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I think you touch on a lot of points yeah. on the, you know, the math and the logical thinking when it, when you do break it down, it's all, it is all math. Um, with, yeah. with, with that, the sparked a question uh, in terms of, I wanted to ask you about influences, but before we get there, uh, were you into math, math metal ever as a drummer? Did you get into that kind of, uh, that kind of space? uh no not and uh, not really i mean look i kind of grew up on everything other than country i think sure. once i moved to the u.s I, I learned to try to appreciate country but i didn't quite get there and no <laughs> offense to country music fans but it's uh, just uh, it's not me <laughs> not me either my friend so yeah and yeah more power to you if you can enjoy that stuff but but i don't um but, you know, like pretty much everything else, right? So the the big one was, you know, 70s, 70s jazz, um, like the really technical fusion type stuff, like, you know, odd time signatures and things switching around and dissonance and all this other stuff. Um, artistically, I just always really appreciated that. And then you kind of go listen to a pop tune and you're like, that's really different. So you start to try to figure out like, why is it different? And that's when the math starts to show up. It's like, oh, that's, you know, 11.8 as a time signature instead of 4.4. Four. And, or that's a, you know, like a, a, a seventh note, um, you know, kind of fairly dissonant chord change. That's a key feature of the song. You're not going to hear that on the radio. So why is that? Like, those were the sorts of things that kind of really just intrigued me about music early on. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting. Like you see that sort of stuff creeping into like all sorts of different. You know, I love like Radiohead, for example, which is not you know metal in any sense of the word, but it's like they're a popular band that use a lot of those like really complicated, weird musical concepts and actually make them sound good. Like that's the mm-hmm. other thing I like about about music and I, how I do think it does kind of translate well. Um, it's ultimately about communication, right? Because like you're writing a song and you're doing that to to basically like almost bypass the intellect and speak directly to a person's self. That's kind of what music does. Um, there's there's a communication aspect to that that I think is very important. Um, definitely in our field, I mean, just in general, but you know, InfoSec's kind of confusing. So the better you can communicate, like more power to Um but also the leadership side of it as well, in terms of like, here's where we're going. This is where the song starts and ends and like rock on. Sure. Yeah. I remember growing up. So I was uh, trained uh, on the trumpet and I, I played that for a long time. Play, yeah. 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 And then I, so I started doing guitar when I was in my teens and, and just kind of self-taught there. And I gravitated kind of instantly to more of the, uh, the harder stuff and the more technical stuff. Cause I felt like it was uh, something I don't, uh, more challenging, better to to learn something that you know challenged my my skill set, and it, it's a lot different going from high school band, even jazz band, or any of the bands where you're doing okay four four most of the time, three four maybe you know maybe some weird stuff in there eight six, but and then you go and you start playing bands like Tool, and Tool will change the you know change the the time signatures up throughout the song into yeah. these weird mathematical uh, breakdowns. Suddenly you're playing 46 and two and you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. this, this mental challenge and it does, it comes back to logic and, and wanting that, I think wanting that, that mental challenge and that stimulation and, and being able to figure those things out. And I think it does correlate, uh, you know, quite a bit when it comes down to this industry. And to have it come out coherent too. Like, I think yes. that's the part, I mean, like in terms of, of being, you know, like a, a, a geek I, you know i think who figured out how to be an entrepreneur um communication really i think is a lot of what unlocks that like the ability to not just know that you can solve things but then be, to be able to communicate like the importance of that how you're going to do that the fact that that's possible the fact that you should to people that don't you know necessarily have a lot of history thinking about that same subject like it's a similar thing it's like okay like tool like their, their music is so technical and, and the, like there's so much math, I think, deliberately built into it. But you can't really, like you don't really notice that and, until you start to unpack it because they put so much work into making it sonorous and to make it communicate in a way that you're just enjoying the tune. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's something in that. It's a really, it's a fun thought. It's it's beautiful when you dive into music theory and actually, you know, begin to appreciate what they're doing and how they're making it seem so simple from a, you know, audible yeah. perspective. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So growing up, um, you know, do you, besides, besides the drum kit, do you have a computer in hand? Are you techie kid? Do you have aspirations to do stuff with tech or what, what is your, what's your dream to, did you go through the whole process of I want to be a musician, you know, do that sort of road too, or, or where does your mindset as a child, where are you planning on, on being? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, inventor, I think would, would probably summarize it best. That was the most consistent one. Um, yeah, honestly, I'm 
these days, like I still don't really know what I want to do when I grow up. So there is sure. that. It's it's kind of been this continuous. I mean, I do. Sorry, that was you know overly <laughs> dramatic for the listeners there. But in principle, the idea of like there's always something new, um, and and there's always this process of self discovery around like what am I capable of? What where are the areas that I can be most effective, most impactful? Um, you know, what I've really learned is that there's always the next sort of boundary to push or, or kind of glass ceiling to break in your own sense of pursuit of potential um, that, you know, for me, I find that really compelling. Like the whole idea of like, oh, what else can I do? Like how, how much more can I expand what I'm able to learn, how I'm able to like, you know, build things, how I'm able to create influence, like create positive impacts you know, generate wealth off the back of that, you know, in, in the case of like the capitalist stuff. Um, that's just kind of always been true. And I put that back down to like invention uh, as a kid. So the whole idea of like, oh, wait, like lightning has power in it. Like, I wonder if you could harness that to, you know, uh, do renewable energy. That was a, a track I got on like really young. And, and that's still actually a thought that keeps me up at night in terms of, you know, renewable energy and the, and the different ways to do that um, from, from an environmental, environmental standpoint. Um, but yeah, it's that kind of, you know, invention streak w- was really the thing that I think was um, dominant. And, you know, my old man was a science teacher, as you point, pointed out before. So I've, I've always got like toys and tools and, and whatnot hanging around the house. Like he's encouraging me to tear stuff apart and put it back together. Um, and, and, you know, I was doing that and then realizing this is really fun. And, oh, by the way, if you put it back, you can put it back together. You can do that differently in a way that, you know, gets it to do more of what you want than what it might have been built to do. So that was, I think, the beginnings of the hacker streak. Sure. So, um, and then eventually he bought a computer home. Like, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, of the age where, like, I started life from an education standpoint without computers and they kind of popped up halfway through. Um, so I still remember when that happened and it was, it was awesome because, you know, all of the stuff that I've been doing with like radios and like lasers and other just random tech, um, once a computer showed up on, on the, you know, the kitchen table, I just started doing it with a computer and it kind of went from there. Now at this age, um, are you creating any kind of, uh, I guess, tools or i know you're, you said you're modifying tools are you are you thinking about businesses at this point any sort of like inventions like you're talking about or any kind of startups yeah. as, a, as a kid it's it's funny i i actually didn't i didn't realize that i liked um business uh, and actually until i until i got married like to me it was more about the pursuit of the solution and and, and trying to do that sort of thing so i was i was you know intellectually attracted to the idea of like solving problems that haven't been solved yet. Um, yeah, I got married. My wife, uh, she's, you know, done like she's an entrepreneur. Like that's a, that's very much, um, her, her DNA. It's what she'd been studying all these different things. And we kind of had this Vulcan mind meld thing happen where, you know, she actually is now studying cybersecurity at university. And I feel like I caught some of my, um, realization that I actually really enjoy, you know, the, the idea of like solving the, the product market fit problem. Like, you know, how do you, I mean, in the bounty space, how do you convince people that hackers aren't horrible, evil people that you should just shun, 
you know, how, how do you convince an organization to, to accept the idea that, um, you know, having their baby called ugly every now and then is actually sure. a good thing, right? Like there's, there's work to that and that's actually a business problem. So I, I kind of learned that from, from her. And in hindsight, I, I always had that intrigue and that kind of competitive streak. I just hadn't really connected it to wanting to build a company or be an entrepreneur. That didn't happen until, you know, mid 2000s or so. Sure. So going, growing up, I guess uh, you graduated. In hindsight, it was always there. It just needed like, oh, that's a thing. So, oh, okay, cool. And then off we went. Yeah. It, you know, actually, now that we're, we're there, uh, something that you brought up, I, I listened to uh, another interview of yours um, with Hack Luke, and you were saying stuff right. about people being cogs and people being levers. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant statement um, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm equally as guilty of, of having gone into the grocery store, you know, going through, a, you know, restaurant or something and seeing somebody from high school or seeing somebody that's of old age. And you're like, wow, you haven't done anything with your life. And that's that's not the right. It's not the right mindset to have. Some people are like you mentioned, the cogs. And then some people are the levers who are always the wheels are always spinning. They're thinking of how they can change things. And, and, and the, you know, the cogs can be perfectly happy having yeah. done that for the last few years. Like I, like the, the, the thought of it makes me twitch like for me no no way but for them all right cool maybe they found their thing and that's awesome <laughs> yeah and there's there's different i feel like there's different levels of cogs too like i i know plenty of people that are high functioning in the sense that um you know I, okay i got a friend that has been in the same job same space very beginner it level for years, like almost 15 years, happy as can be, doesn't want to move up, doesn't want to earn any more money. Great for him. Uh, then you got people who are, you know, the almost the hacker types or the the cybersecurity mindsets where they've always got that personality where they got to learn the next thing, they got to do it, but they're still not going out and starting their own business. They're still being a part of a system, but they're more high functioning as, as a cog. So I think you have different levels of, of levers and different levels of cogs at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I, I wrote a post on this, uh, gosh, six or seven years ago when it first happened. Um, because literally it was that experience. Like I walked into the, you know, I was back in Australia. Um, I walked into the supermarket where I, like that was my first job. And my supervisor when I was a 14 year old still there. And, you know, the whole thing was like, oh, you know, wow, like that's sad. And, 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 you know, feeling like what I'd done was inherently superior to what mm -hmm. they'd done. Um, but then catching that thought and realizing, no, that's, you're being a kind of a jerk right now. Like that's, that can't be, that can't be how this should work. Like it just doesn't feel right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, big believer in just, you know, the intrinsic value of humans, period, regardless of what they're doing, right? So the whole, like that violated kind of a core belief and I caught it. Um, and um, yeah, that's when all this kind of came out. It's like, you know, maybe folks that just want to like find the thing that they can do, do it repeatedly, you know, to your point around different sizes of cogs, like, yeah, maybe the opportunity is to climb a corporate ladder or to, you know, go from a checkout operator to being a supervisor or whatever that might be. Um, and that's, you know, like kind of changing the size of the cog that you are as you go through your career. Um, switch it over. If you've got a lever, um, you know, really it's about having more cogs and more other levers 
kind of, I think, reacting as a function of you changing state, right? Sure. So, yeah, the whole the whole thing in that blog post was like cogs without levers just continue to turn forever, and eventually they become irrelevant. So that's that's where people that you know come in and, and think disruptively, I think, play a really critical role in the future of basically everything, and that's you know historically true. So that's not really a new idea. Um, but with levers, we need cogs. Otherwise, we're just making clicking sounds. Do you know what I mean? Like we're just yep. like, eh, you know, this should be a thing that changes. Well, great, no one cares. You know, and and nothing really improves or, or is modified as a result. So there's really this symbiosis of all types that come together to make the machine, um, and the machine's the thing that actually gets the work done. That was like the moment um, trying to trying to unpack that whole thing. It was really interesting because like that was during a really heady period of bug crowd. Um, you know, the venture thing, like you get funded, like TechCrunch are writing about you, all these different things. And and it's fun. It's exciting. Um, I think the ability to get kind of over your skis on how good you think you are is, you know, very real through, through that process. So I was starting to become aware of that and looking for opportunities to kind of, you know, bring myself back into line in a way that's practical. It's like, how does life work? You know, like I enjoy being good at the things that I do, but I don't want to become so disconnected from reality and everyone else that I become ineffective. So how do I try to you know, balance that out? Sure. Yeah. I, I just thought it was, uh, you know, listening to that and hearing that story, I thought it was a, you know, interesting perspective that I've never put into before. And it, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting to think of life like that and everybody has their purpose. And just because somebody's uh, you know, working at a grocery store doesn't mean they're unhappy. You know, they could be completely yeah. content with their life. I think it, I think a big part of the reason for writing that to on, on, you know, the other side of it, you know, again, almost informed by the bug crowd perspective where we've got at that point in time, more and more people kind of looking at us and looking at the space saying, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Right. Um, is to contextualize some of the pressure of that. It's like, you don't all have to, X, Y, Z. Um, you know, the, the, the goal from my perspective is, is pursuit of potential, trying to connect to the thing that you're best wired up. And I think ultimately like here to do. Um, and that doesn't look like me. And it doesn't look like you. It doesn't look like, you know, my supervisor or worse. It looks like whoever the person is. So what's the journey of discovery in, in finding those things? And like, how can you remove pressure that's counterproductive um, from that? process right um that was that was really the idea it's like just you know being a lever is great i love it like it's my preference right but not everyone has to be um you know figure out if it's the right thing or not and then start to think more about what you actually want to do and what you're good at yeah that's it's great insight um i want to pivot here just a little bit so uh, we'll skip over a little bit of the the high school years you kind of graduate high school you kind of go into it right and then at some point um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're laid off of work. Um, does that, is that back against the wall type mentality? What finally kind of unlocks the entrepreneurial mindset for you in the sense that I, you go from being this, Hey, I'm an inventor to now, Oh shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, time to start, you know, producing and, and being this entrepreneur. Yeah, you caught that. That's, ex that's exactly how that went down. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, the, the whole idea of like, oh, wow, I, I actually really like business. Um, turns out I'm good at it. Like, I didn't realize that that was under duress. Like learning that was, was kind of a, um, 
a forced thing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, as you said, like we, you know, my wife and I got married. We went off on our, on our honeymoon. Um, my plan, I actually quit my job to take our honeymoon because they wouldn't give me the leaves. So I'm like, I don't want to work here anymore. Um, and she had a plan to cover that. And then we we're going to go forward from there. But then she got retrenched when, when, when we returned. So all of a sudden we're like, yay, marriage is awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. How are we going to, how are we going to pay the rent? Like ugh, a little freak out moment. And at that point in time, uh, you know, we had um, like, I'd been building, you know, the ability to do audio recording and different things like that. And going back to the Muso stuff before I, I had, gotten some practice in sourcing audio equipment to do recording, like bringing it in from the U S you know, converting it to Australian power and like upgrading components and different things like that. So I started selling some pieces of that off. And what I noticed was when I sold it, it sold for, you know, four or five times what I bought it for, um, which was completely by accident. It was like, Oh wow. I didn't think that would happen. Um, and, and, you know, trying to solve the problem of like, what are we doing to pay the rent and, and, you know, just do the very practical newlywed, you know, keep the lights on things. It's like, maybe I could do that again. Uh, and it kind of went from there, like that turned into this accidental, you know, fairly decent um, import business uh, around audio gear in Australia. That was really my start, I think, in, in entrepreneurship. And the interesting thing that also taught me, I think, was when um, you know, 2008 rolled up, which was a couple of years later. And all of a sudden, you know, the U S currency and the U S economy kind of drops. The Australian dollar actually went way up from a parity standpoint switch, you know, like how, how do you take advantage of arbitrage and, and just the prevailing kind of conditions in a way that's, you know, supporting your needs as a business person and as someone who needs to, again, keep their lights on. Right but is also like providing something that's good. Like that, that was one of the things that I learned from, from that process, you know, eBay um, was kind of the main vehicle and they were really good at reinforcing this at the time. It's basically don't be a jerk. Like you only get one reputation. Uh, so if you're going to do a thing, like don't put your name on something that sucks. Um, that is a viable way to make money and build a business. I think it's wrong. Um, but I also think it's fragile because eventually you get called out and you don't tend to get to do that twice. So that, that helped instill that principle and made that point in time as well. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I think there's some similarities between us having heard, you know, some of that backstory before in the sense that, um, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I had figured out that the, you know, the U S book prices were insane. It was like $250 per book for every class you were taking. And, uh, I figured out that, you know, in, in Europe, the books were like, quarter of the price same book same everything different cover that's all it was um yeah. so i you know i came up with the the brilliant idea of okay i'm just going to put these books online for sale and then i'll order them from you know from a third party have them shipped to somebody's door they're not going to notice this difference yep. um and you know pocket some money really quick doing that uh, while i'm relying yeah. on other suppliers and vendors but it's like seeing the you know, seeing the market as as what it was, where you can make this profit off of uh, identical, you know, identical book. Um, yeah, well, and, and the risk and like practically, you know, the, the thing that I realized, I mean, I was doing modification stuff. So Australia's on 240 volt AC out of the wall, you know, 
North America's 110. So you've got to make that work. Um, and then going through like old components and seeing if anything needed replacement and different things like that. It wasn't a lot of work, but I was trying to add value in the middle there. That was my kind of original, yeah, I'm just selling someone else's stuff here. This doesn't quite feel right. Um, justification. Uh, but then I also realized that, you know, at that point in time, people weren't comfortable shipping across the Pacific. So the idea of like buying something in North America and having it arrive at your doorstep in Australia, that was still a really risky idea for most people. Like today, it's just normal, but it wasn't like that at that point in time. So I was taking that risk. Yep. I'm like, oh, okay. So if I take that risk and put processes in place and connect it with the buyer in a way that gets them what they need, um, and I'm kind of taking on that overhead for them, like that's where the value is. Um, if, if, if I can bridge that gap in a way that solves all the different problems that are in play and then kind of really, you know, do that in, in a way that's repeatable, good service, all these different things, then yeah, okay, people are going to pay extra for that. I get to keep that because that's the value that I've added. And it kind of goes from there. Same for the books, right? Yeah. It's like probably a similar thing in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and transitioning to, I know you had, you, you mentioned eBay. Yeah. So with the the eBay business that you, you start, is that like a, is that a tool that you built or is that like a storefront or what were you, what were you kind of running with eBay there? Yeah, it was a, it was a tool. So somewhere in this process, I read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which is like this, you know, go be awesome. Um, entrepreneur book there's some really good stuff in there i think um and you know i said this on the uh, on the thing with with luke as well it's it's as a business manual really incomplete it's more like hey go do stuff um but it had that effect on me i got kind of inspired to go off and you know figure out how outsourcing works like figure out how to you know build uh, development teams that could build platforms and different things like that and the gap I saw with with eBay at that point in time was the fact that um, yeah, there was no kind of analytics on why someone found what you were selling. So okay, which part of my you know SEO, my you know listing like title, my listing content, like how is that relevant to the buyer? So this is me trying to think through like marketing funnels and different things like that. And the data just didn't exist for you to be able to optimize that. So we basically built Google Analytics for eBay, um, and and that was that was that that project that you're referring to there. I think. Gotcha. And, and so backtracking just a tiny bit, um, you know, I've had friends and I've read even entrepreneurs talk um, online about having the the back up against the wall kind of mindset, like literally, you know. Um, I've had one friend tell me like, I want to move to this big city, have no money to my name and just have like that back against the wall mindset. And then uh, the the flip of that too, being that entrepreneurs talking about reinvesting every single dollar that you have so that you remain hungry, not taking any sort of, uh, you know, profits yeah. back or any sort of salary. And do you, you know, having gone through it and not necessarily going through it intentionally, um, you know, is that something like a mindset that you recommend to people or, you know, does it kind of kind of vary or would you yeah. not wish that upon anybody or what's that kind of uh, opinion there? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so that that was, you know, when we got our start, the reality is, um, you know, even at that point in time, as as, you know, newlyweds doing the eBay thing. All right. If it really didn't work out, like we could go, you know 
stay in our parents' back room, um, which neither of us wanted to do, but we knew like if it became an issue of survival, we had that option. Um, and I think that's always, that's always been true in, in, in different ways, like being able to see what your you know, safety net or what your keep lights on option looks like, <clears throat> being able to stare that in the face until you get comfortable um, and then going forward on that basis. I, I, that was a really, I think, powerful kind of principle. You know, I was learning intuitively at that point in time, but I had other people kind of mentoring me to some degree and actually kind of calling it out. Um, because you don't want to take unnecessary risk. I think, you know, the, the, the thing I see uh, entrepreneurs get into is, is this idea of like, oh, cool, I can just, you know, hype the market up, go out and, and raise funding and do all those sorts of things. And then everything's going to be great. They don't consider, you know, the work that goes into that or the, you know, what they're going to do if, if failure actualizes, which it does like literally, you know, 98% of the time. So like making a plan for that smart, right? I don't think that's, um, you know, a lack of confidence in yourself or anything like that. I think that's actually one of the reasons people tend to avoid it. They're like, I don't want to think about the downside because then I'm not going to be jazzed about doing the thing that I want to do. It's just kind sure. of a bummer, um, which I get, but it's unwise like to be able to say, okay, here's this very practical kind of assessment of what, um, you know, my fallback states look like. I'm going to get comfortable with those and then work really hard to avoid them. It, it helps. And I think to your question, like that idea of having enough, you know, duress to kind of force you in that direction. I think that is a good thing. Um, yeah, I had, I had kids when I started, started bug crowd. Um, you know, we, we, we kind of, you know, did the whole like live in hostels and, uh, my, my co-founder and I actually slept in an abandoned, literally an abandoned, um, factory in San Francisco for, for a couple of weeks while we we're fundraising. Like there's all those wacky stories that you end up with, you know, doing this type of thing. And, um, it's crazy. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, people ask me like, Oh, like, ask me at the time, you know, are you nuts? Like you're doing this with a family. What about them? You know, my wife and my kids were on board. Like they, they understood what was going on. They were willing. I wasn't kind of dragging them. And that was another thing that I made sure of. Cause that's kind of a keep lights on thing too. Um, yeah, I actually think that some of that pressure was was productive for me um, because I, I couldn't afford to screw around. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just playing with an idea. I sure. actually had a family to support and, and there was like this, you know, need to get it at least mostly right for their sake. That provides accountability to me as I'm like ideating and, you know, coming up with random stuff and getting distracted over here and whatever else. Like there's a focus that brings. Um I'm not sure that's true for everyone, to be honest. I think that's that's just, you know, my own kind of like neurodiversity and, and understanding of how I operate, like recognizing that that was actually a useful thing for me to have. That's kind of what happened there. I think some people, you know, you put too much pressure on or any pressure and they crumble. Um, and that's not, you know, that's just who they are. Like, okay, I think it's good to get better at, handling that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, understanding what's actually useful to make you most productive and then expecting that you'll get it kind of half wrong, um, but then be able to learn from that and improve over time. I think that's the goal. Yeah. And let's transition with that conversation, I think, into into Bug Crowd. I think this would be a good place here. So, sure. you know, you, you, you create Bug Crowd in 2012. Right. Uh, but with with that, where does the you know, where does the idea spark? Where does it come from? Because what almost 10 years ago 
nobody's thinking really about the the hacker space. Companies are are not really bought into okay, hackers are good people, uh, or there can yeah. be hackers that are good people. Um, you know, they're not thinking about security mm -hmm. assessments or or, or you know um, bug bounties as, as general. It seems like such a obscure idea. So where does this come from? Does uh, you know what sparks this, and um, you know what was the the process moving forward? For sure. Um, so we talked about like the, the, the tech kind of origin side of things. The other thing, you know, I, I've just always really enjoyed thinking like a criminal. I'm not <laughs> sure if it's an Australian or you know, <laughs> what it is, but there's this sort of sense of, you know, appreciation for mischief. Um, yeah. You know, I'm known for being a bit of a, like a provocateur and a troll and that's always been true. It's just, you know, it's just something that it's like, if you want to push on things and move them forward, like looking for the edge and, and poking on it sometimes is the right thing to do. Um, you know, but also this idea of like criminal creativity, like criminals are entrepreneurs without rules. Um, I don't want to be one like that. That was the thing that was interesting. It's like, I really appreciate this way of thinking and, and this kind of creativity and just being able to get whatever you need to do done. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea that they do it without respect to morals or rules or harm, because that ultimately nets out to a more open playing field for them. Um, but also I really don't want to hurt people. Like I, I'm not comfortable to actually do that myself. So like trying to figure out how to reconcile all that, that was, that was interesting. Um, and I think, you know, like getting into pen testing, that was kind of my first job out of, out of uh, high school. I'm like, Oh my God, I get to do this and, you know, like actually help people get paid for it, get, you know, talked about as someone who's actually a legit contributor to society and, and make things better. This is Christmas, right? Like realizing that was the thing was, was pretty cool. Um, but then the whole way through that, I was, you know, like trying to connect in with community, like back at that time, it was like BBS and then IRC and, you know, eventually Twitter showed up and, and we all kind of did that. Um, so I was always aware of this like incredible, like, you know, what I felt was latent potential that existed in the capacity of the community um, that just would really probably do this stuff for fun. You know, ideally, like, let's turn this into a career. But like, honestly, these people most of the time are doing it because they just love it. And that's the starting point. So it's sitting out there kind of unplugged. Um, and in the meantime, like technology is growing at a million miles an hour. We're not doing it very well. Uh, like the bad guys are having a party. And, you know, as a pen tester, I'm recognizing the fact that there's not enough people with an adversarial mindset to actually answer all the questions that are being formed on, on the defender side. So really the origin of, of bug crowd was, was just being kind of vexed by that problem. It's like, we, we need to do better if, if, if we're tasked with, you know, basically outsmarting on, on a creative level, this army of adversaries and, and our attack surface is created by this army of engineers who are awesome, but they screw up occasionally because that's what humans do. Um, you know, Bob and Jane, the pen tester, they might be really good, but they're, they're kind of screwed because of the math, right? Um, you know, automation is not going to do it. It'll provide leverage, but you know, until like we're worried about stuff like Skynet, it's not going to come in and actually replace the role of creativity in that process. So how do you, how do you make that better? Um, and really around the same time, that was when, you know, people were starting to like look at what eBay and um, 
sorry, PayPal specifically and, and Facebook and Google were doing with their VRP and saying, oh, that, that's cool. That sort of makes sense. Um, so that was, you know, really the origin of bug crowd and, and kind of the, the coalescing of these thoughts was, was when I had a literally a business trip to Melbourne, uh, met with a bunch of customers. I think, you know, Facebook had just done some press around their VRP. Everyone wanted to talk about it. They're like, what do you think about this? It seems cool. Like it's this like, you know, neat, like Silicon Valley thing. That's just intriguing because Silicon Valley things are, but it's more than that. It actually seems to make sense as a way to kind of balance the equation and, and, you know, more kind of reliably solve this problem into the future. Um, you know, what do you think? And, you know, my answer to that was, well, why aren't you doing it? Like if the hackers are at the door um, and they're waiting for an invitation, just invite them and go. And really it was the the reasons that people gave me not to do that, that, that kind of forms, you know, it was literally the flight home from that trip where the light bulb went off and I'm like, wait, they all said the same thing if I can solve those problems in context of a platform and a business, then all of a sudden we get the opportunity to plug this stuff in and like, maybe we can do something really cool here. That's my phone. Um, and that was kind of when the light bulb went off. So, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. Bug crowd. That sounds like a good name. And like came up with the original uh, crowdsource pen test model at that point, all these different things like, got in the car, drove home as quickly as I could to register domains and Twitter handles and all that sort of stuff. If you, you know, you can actually see the day that happened if you do a who is lookup on, on, on the domain. Cause it was, it kind of literally came together like that. Um, but those were like the precursors, this idea of like, we're not very good at this. Like humans are intractably like critical to this whole domain of cybersecurity. It's not a technology problem. It's actually a human problem that goes a lot faster now that we have the internet, like how do we make the humans go faster and, and, and give, you know, the defender the ability to, to be smarter than the adversary. And yeah, that's kind of how it all came together. So you're, are you in Australia at this time or are you in the U S at this time when the idea comes to you like living wise? Uh, here. Yeah. I was, I was actually in Australia at the time. Yep. So, so probably the other thing going on there as well was, you know, uh, there, there was the, the eBay platform, I'd actually, um, at that point, like quit my job, started a consultancy with the view of doing startup-y things. Um, I was running like a white-labeled pen test, um, basically consultancy into some of the um, SIs and VARs in Australia that had the ability to, to sell this type of work but didn't have the people to do it. So we kind of white-labeled into that. And that was, you know, the business precursor to Bugcrowd. The problem I had with that was the idea that like, you know, I kind of called it out before, like one person versus everyone, they're going to eventually lose. So how do you improve that? But also the fact that like, there's just so much, and there still is so much like snake oil around how, how, you know, services get sold in our space. Like we're masters of the dark arts. Um, <laughs> so like, just trust us that we're totally legit, you know, pay us a bunch of money, we'll come in, do something that you can't really tell whether it's good or bad because you don't actually really understand what we're talking about in the first place. Um, and then we're going to put this huge margin on top. And as a business, it's great, but, you know, the question is, is it solving the problem for the user at the end of the day? Because it's it's grandma that ends up kind of messed up by that if it goes on for too long. So that was that was the other side. Just looking at the pen test industry and thinking, there are folk that do this well, but there's a lot more folk that are just exploiting what's possible. Um, I kind of want to call bullshit on that. Sure. 
And, and so yeah. when when the when the idea comes and you go go home register all this and you're working your job, um, you know what is the what's the next thought process there? Is it hey I'm I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to go uh, you know go on the road? We're going to go to you know establish this thing and. I know you mentioned going to San Francisco, maybe Silicon Valley and, and living out there. But, you know, what, what was the step to to having the decision to living in an abandoned, uh, you know, place for a couple of weeks to, to getting to that, you know, that place in time, uh, you know, trying to, to pitch your company? Yeah, for sure. So and just to be clear, like I'd, I'd already so I'd kind of broken bad, so to speak, from salary employment, probably about three years before this. Sure. Um, and honestly, that, that was the hardest thing, like from a career standpoint, going from relying on that and, and just having that be how I did stuff to now, you know, I have to catch what I like, catch and kill what I eat. Um, that was probably the scariest decision. I think all of, all of the things that happened after that got easier because that, that one was so, it's such a shift. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he heading into this, you know, my, my, my wife and I were always intrigued by the idea of, of living somewhere else. Um, you know, we're really intrigued by, by San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley and just this kind of cradle of, you know, innovation, uh, what's it called, incubation in that sense. Um, we wanted to see how, how that worked and, and see on the inside of it. So we were, already had this like idling desire to get over there at some point. Um, with, with bug crowd, you know, you're asking about the process. I think the decision to actually go to Silicon Valley, uh, was, you know, really looking at how it would potentially grow and realizing this is going to move quickly. Like if this, it's either going to catch on fire and fail, or it'll move really fast. If it does the latter, we want to be in a place where we've got as much access to resource to be able to move fast as we can make available for ourselves. And. You know, Sydney's awesome, but it's not Silicon Valley. Like Silicon Valley is kind of like Hollywood. If you're an actor, there's nothing special about it um, other than the fact that it's been doing it the longest. So you end up with this like critical mass of, of all of these different things you get to take advantage of there. And that's why I wanted to go. Um, but yeah, really from there, it was like a whole bunch of testing. It's, you know, like are, are hackers going to turn up and actually participate in this type of thing? Like, are they interested? Um, pretty quickly validated the answer to that was yes. Um, you know, I put a tweet out and a landing page up and said, Hey, I'm going to try this thing out. If you want to maybe hack on some cool stuff, like go sign up. And it, it went viral. We you know, onboarded a couple of thousand users within a month. Um, and this is before bug bounties were a thing. And before, you know, bug bounty platforms were a thing, we're actually the first to go out and say, we want to jump in the middle and try to help make this work. So from there, it was, you know, is the market going to accept this? Um, actually, no, the next one was, does it work? So I, I put out a, a bounty on an app that I'd written. It promptly got completely destroyed. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this works. Um, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I can build things to break other things, but I'm not a platform engineer by any stretch of the imagination. So that was kind of fun. And, you know, the validation of that was just the, the level of creativity that people put into trying to find exploit chains on, on this system. Cause I'd seen pen tests for, you know, 15 years before that. And I'm like, Whoa, this is a step up. Like it's less a function of, you know, the amount of money or, or whatever else. It's more the fact that if you get the right people thinking about the right things as they approach a target, that's when the magic happens. So how can we do that more? Right. Um, 
and then it was really about trying to see if the market would accept it or not. And that was, that was the interesting part um, because the early answer was, was a very resound yes around the fact that like, you know, the kind of companies that were trying to figure out how to better defend themselves felt like they didn't have the people or the skills or even the tooling to do that. Uh, and, and what they had available at that point just wasn't working. So that was, that was a quick, yes, we, we were able to, you know, do a deal with like Google in the early days. We, we worked with like one of the largest retailers here. There was a whole bunch of very early proof that like, yeah, there's pain in this market and there's something, there's something there in this solution. So really from there, you package all that up, you talk to a VC, you talk to an accelerator program, you know, for us, we wanted to get funding. That was, that was another thing that, um, I kind of decided to do because of that, you know, projected growth ramp. Um, and it was a really a matter of getting all that information together and saying, I think this is going to be a thing. Would you like to invest in it? And it all kind of went from there. Yeah. And that was my next question to you is, you know, the, the decision to get seed funding um, because I, and at this time, so I don't know much about the background, but like in 2012, hacker one spawns up too. Right. So is there ever pressure in the sense that you're kind of now in an arms race with another bug company and, you know, first to market, first to first to capitalize kind of thing. And is, does that is there any decision with the seed funding behind that, too? Yes. Um, in, in the sense that, you know, going back to what I said before, this is either going to catch on fire and fail or move really quickly. If it moves really quickly, you're going to end up with competition. So, so there was that sort of, you know, thought in the back of my head. Um, and, and honestly, I actually think this is such a ubiquitous solution and such a kind of global problem that, you know, there's still, I, I don't even really feel like we scratched the paint off, off the potential of this idea at this point in time. Like, you know, we've been talking about bounties now for like nine years. Um, the reality is that most of the internet still doesn't do it. So, okay. Like, what does that say about who's going to come in and help make that happen? Um, so competition is a really good thing in that sense because sure. it, it basically it helps you establish the category. Like that was step zero for us. The whole idea of like, hey, this is like a thing now. Um, articulating that, getting people to understand it and buy it. And I think as the subtext to that, like change their opinion of hackers in general. It's like, I thought these were bad people. You're telling me they're good now. That's weird. Help me through that. Um, that took a lot of work in, in, in the early days, but, you know, to your point around competition and, and seed funding and different things like that, it takes capital to get that done. Like, I, I honestly think that, you know, the biggest thing that's, um, us, you know, hacker one who popped up probably nine months later, uh, and Synac who popped up probably three to six months later achieved in that period of time was actually basically convincing the market that hackers could be a part of the solution and weren't just part of the problem um and that was a lot of work and and they probably said the same things like I, I know a lot of people that work for and have worked for for both of those organizations and in some ways you know we were competing for deals and different things like that but in other ways we're all kind of fighting the same fight in terms of trying to make this thing real um you know on behalf of ourselves as companies but also on behalf of the hacker community and the internet itself um, so yeah, seed funding, like you need money to do that, right? Like if you, if you have to sell everything before you get to spend the money to try to grow it, um, this really wasn't compatible with, with, with that approach. Um, 
just because of how quickly it needed to go and, and how large it is. So was there buy-in pretty quick or were you like how many, how many, uh, I guess, presentations did you have to go do in front of, you know, different VCs and or were you getting buy-in pretty quick from the VCs? Yeah, it, it, we, we just had proof. Like I, I'd um, professionally, I'd kind of moved from, you know, I mentioned the whole thing around like the accidental eBay import export thing and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, the other thing that happened for me at that point in time is my wife sat me down and said, Hey, like you computer good, um, you people good too. Like you probably don't realize that not everyone can do that, like bridge that gap. Um, and she actually suggested I get into like solutions, architecture and sales and things that are more towards like the front of the house, which I did. Um, cause I thought it was a good idea and it worked. So I had at that point, you know, uh, a, a decent amount of experience in, in sales and, you know, problem solution fit in market and different things like that. And that was really a lot of what got the early traction for, for bug crowd. It was going back to folks that I knew how to speak to because I'd been selling them pen test or helping them to design defensive solutions or whatever else going back and saying, Hey, I've got this idea. Uh, you know, it's kind of alpha. Um, and it's a little scary, but if you trust, me and if you trust the logic behind the idea and you're willing to containerize it um to an extent that any kind of unintended consequences is you know okay um would you be willing to give it a go and you know literally most people that we spoke to in that really early stage they, they said yes to that because the preempt the like the precursor question was are you happy with how you're doing security assessment today like do you feel like you know as much as the adversary does about your environment no one ever says yes to that. Um, and that was even more true at that point in time. So that was kind of the lead in. Um, here's the solution we've got. Do you want to try it out? Yes, it worked. Oh my God, this is crazy. Um, and, you know, packaging all that proof together and then going back to the VCs and saying, I think this is going to work. Um, and then, you know, looking at it, I think looking at me and, you know, my co founders at the time, realizing that we were pretty motivated to try to get this done. Um, at that point as a seed stage investor, you're trying to answer two questions. Like, do I care about this market? And do I think these people can do it? Um, and it's all a bet, but like you have to satisfy those two things. And I think we satisfied them fairly convincingly, especially in those early stages. So yeah, we had, um, we had a bunch of Australian VCs jump in, you know, even before we left to go to America. Um, my plan was always to try to get American capital into the business because I wanted to like execute the next stage in America and, and be able to, you know, basically connect more quickly with people that understood how to do that over there. Cause I get enough of it to be dangerous from Australia, but also assume that like, it's a different country. I don't necessarily know how this works. Um, and got over there, you know, promptly realized that Americans and Australians don't pitch the same way. Um, there's a lot of like communication quirks that I needed to try to figure out to be able to get the, the value message across. Um, and I don't think either are right or wrong there. They're just very different. So I'm going and saying, this is awesome. They're like, yeah, we like it, but nah. um, so, you know, that was like the pitch Americano, uh, like learning, um, you know, boot camp that I did when we first arrived, but it worked eventually. And we closed the seed round, you know, spent the rest of that year figuring out how to immigrate and kind of went from there. Awesome. And it, it was there any point from either starting up seed funding, even to years later, 
any point of concern of failure any point that you thought that hey this might not work out um i mean yes definitely like you know being being the leader of a thing like this and 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 being an entrepreneur just in general like you you get this um you know it's a roller coaster right mm -hmm. like there's you're on the top of the mountain you know in 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 the morning you're in like the bottom of death valley at lunchtime and you back up on the mountain in the afternoon and that's just like a normal day um so so that sense of like how dynamic it is and you know that converting into a fear of failure i was never i think once we got moving i was never concerned about the category like the idea of like this is gonna this is going to become a thing now like i was convinced of that and the fact that that wouldn't fail probably about six months in um which was good that was like my kind of primary objective um downstream of that it's like okay how is bug going to be able to execute into this you know can we like succeed or fail at this particular initiative our ability to you know convince the market that this is even a good idea in the first place as a business um there's definitely some moments in there where it's like, Oh crap. Like this is a lot, or, you know, this is a bit freaky or whatever else. Um, I hesitate to call it fear of failure because honestly, like failure is just how you learn stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, sure. I think doing a lot of this, you know, operating on this, this idea that, you know, 50% of what I assume is going to work is going to be probably kind of wrong. Um, and the only way I'll learn where there's opportunities to iterate and improve is if I test. So this, this idea of like things not getting like not coming together, you know, exactly according to the plan you'd set. That's just to me, like a, a normal feature of innovation. So I'm not really afraid of that, I guess is what I'm saying. Now, did you have any fears of, I guess, delegation early on? Like Dave Kennedy, I talked about this last, last week in the sense that, Oh you know, yeah. yeah, like it took, he said it took him four years and, you know, you want it's your baby like you're talking about and you're, you're, you want to touch every little piece. But once you grow to a certain size, it becomes impossible to have your hands in every single bit of every jar. Right. So um, were you, you struggle with that early on. And, you know, how did you end up getting over over that? I actually I, I, I talked I had had some conversations with Dave about this um, as I was like becoming aware of that phenomena and trying to navigate it. Um, and it was just as he was starting to do or, or thinking about starting to do binary defense. So that like roughly in that era and you're exactly right. Like I, I think the, the way that you know, I do, I do a fair bit of um, like uh, startup mentorship and, and, you know, advisory type stuff now. And, you know, one of the things that I'll, that I'll talk about with founders is that as found as founder, your job is to basically do everything, right? Like you're, you're the expert part of the reason you're doing everything, you know, most of the time is because you just love it. It's interesting. Like you're kind of passionate and you get drawn to it anyway. Um, but the role of a CEO ultimately is to kind of do nothing. Like, <laughs> sure. You, you don't, you know, you shouldn't have, your business shouldn't depend on your hands being on the tools. Like as, as CEO, your role is to make sure every, everyone knows where the North star is, make sure the right people are doing the right things and make sure there's enough cash in the bank and that's it. So, you know, the whole idea of the journey of extracting yourself from how does payroll work and like, oh, that's a really cool bug and all of this stuff to, to this kind of, you know, fairly abstracted management role. 
it's hard. It's super, like it's super counterintuitive, especially when you get like really jazzed about what you're working on in, in the way that I do. Um, and probably you would have heard similar things from Dave because that's, that's kind of the conversation that he and I had as well. It's not a, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, I think being aware that, you know, management and like the execution of scale is, is a completely, in my view, discrete skill set um, to being a competent technologist and even being a competent leader. Like I, I think that leadership and management, you know, they're, they're closely related, but they're fundamentally different at the same time. Um, and, and I think, you know, realizing that like keeping check on that, this is, you know, the role of mentors to give you input on where they feel like your gaps are and actually, you know, being humble enough to listen to that stuff. That's something that, yeah, I've, I've always placed priority on like done well and poorly at various, various points along the way. But I think that's a lot of how I figured that out as well as just, you know, recognizing there was a thing that I needed to stay ahead of and, and thinking about it as something that's really important. Yeah. And, you know, being able to, to delegate, I feel like allows you to get so much more done. Um, and, and you find oh, yeah. where your, you find where your purpose is and how you can become more efficient. Like, uh, for me, the the biggest scariest part when I was first starting with the you know, delegation was I had built all these clients and this this company and everything up by reputation. So if I'm doing the yeah. pen test and I'm doing everything, yeah. and my reputation is everything in the industry, um, you know, bringing somebody else on and saying, "Here, you go do this." Now I'm not even going to touch it. Uh, it it's yeah. hard. It's hard, but you become so much more efficient. If somebody's working on that, then you could be working on other sales or new ideas or bringing something else to the table that otherwise your time would have been so consumed with doing this technical work. And um, once you learn to step back, which is a very difficult thing to do, I, I feel like you get to see the bigger picture and you get to be more of an effective leader and, and really help the organization grow. Yeah. Well, you, you get to, you get to act in service of the company's mission more. Uh, as opposed to you, just your own, if that yeah, makes sense. Like that, that's that's sort of how that's how I characterize that because you're exactly right. This whole idea of like, oh, like I'm going to give this thing over to this person over here. I know that um, they wouldn't do it as good as <laughs> I would, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is you know very deliberate air quotes there because in reality, if you've hired them, it's probably because they're better at the particular thing you're delegating to them than you Absolutely. are. Absolutely. You got to, but you got to get through this dip where you're kind of handing off that responsibility and, and ultimately the output um, and, you know, basically betting on the fact that they'll pop back up above like net, net neutral on that and, and end up actually bringing scale to the company. Like the, the way I think about that is that you can't scale unless you do this. Um, I, I also do think that scale is a choice. Like, yes, you know, absolutely. If, if you're, if you're a, um, I get asked this all the time. Oh, how do I go to Silicon Valley and raise a bunch of money and do what Bugcrowd did? I'm like, why the hell would you do that? Like, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, that's the response I give most people because their assumption is that's what you need to do. And part of what I'm trying to do there is to challenge that assumption and get them to actually be mindful about where they're going. Because it's like, don't get like caught in the current on that stuff. Like, you don't have to scale. If you want to, then rock on because I think that's how you end up doing big stuff. But it is, it's more of a, I think, a choice that you make than, than a thing that you, um, you necessarily get dragged into doing, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's, so that, 
this whole time, like, you know, what I've been thinking in the background is that you and Dave are, are opposites in the sense that he started and still 100% owns this, you know, trusted tech and half owns, I think, binary defense in, in the sense that, you know, he grew that, but he grew that in the sense that he incubated that from a very slow grow until it started yeah. rolling and rolling and snowball grew. Um, you know, I think there's yeah. so much with the, the sense of everybody wants uh, instant satisfaction and instant growth. And uh, yeah. I think there's there's times where you need seed funding, especially if you have competition and you are first to market and you want to really dominate that market. Yeah. But if you're doing yeah. yeah, if you're doing something like like this, like having 100 percent ownership is better than having five percent ownership at the end of the day but it depends on how you want to grow and what market you're in and and you know yeah, it, yeah every, there's so many variables there that yeah like you said rushing to seed is is not necessarily the best strategy depending on how you want to grow what market you're going to end up being in exactly and and the counterpoint to that you know when when people come to me for advice on this stuff i i am very like i'll rarely tell someone what i think they should do um what I'm more interested in doing is, is helping them create a mental model that can fit into how they're thinking about it so they can make informed choices. Because if I do that, then it stays their vision. It's not, oh, Casey told me I should do this. Exactly. And like he was wrong and rah. You know, you, you retain ownership if you, I think, operate like that on, on their end. Um, you know, the, the, the flip to it is that like 0% or, you know, 100% of nothing is still nothing. Yes. So if you need to grow then okay like dilution you know having a board learning how to do all that stuff learning how venture financing works and pitching and there's a lot um to it like i'm i'm a you know i think anyone who goes this far in in entrepreneurship venture backed becomes kind of a vc finance nerd and it's this very weird sort of subset of of overall kind of financial stuff um but it's incredibly valuable if, if you want to do things that, that grow quickly or that need to grow quickly. I think in, in the case of our market and in bug crowds case, that's, it's that last bit that was actually true. It's like, if this gets going, um, we're going to end up in a position where we're basically running to keep up with it, which was validated within a year of starting the company that was spot on. So you know, at that point in time, we didn't really have the option to do the slow burn, right? Like bootstrap thing, because it wasn't the nature of the thing that we were doing, right? Um, yeah, that said, like we've got, um, you know, Mike and Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar from Atlassian, uh, they, they've been mentors and advisors the whole way through. Like they bootstrapped for, you know, 11 years before they raised their first round. Now they're uh, whatever it is, $30 billion. A publicly listed company so there's all sorts of different roads to rome it's really again coming back to like what is the thing that you're actually setting out to do like how clear as the leader and the founder can you be on where the north star is um how much conviction do you have around that so that if stuff comes in that's not quite in the right direction you're going to be able to make a choice to line it back up um if you can get that stuff right then i think a lot of the rest of it falls into place kind of underneath yeah, I mean, you touch on a good point there with the, uh, you know, 100% nothing is still nothing in the sense that I've seen a couple of my friends go out and start different different pen test companies. Um, one started with a group of guys and organically grew over the 
you know, first three years, just, um, you know, taking the money, reinvesting the money and, and putting into Google ads and, and marketing yep. and really just getting every single penny of revenue that they earned went right back into the business. And, yep. um, you know, they've grown slow grow, but the snow snowball started growing word of mouth grows, you know, the more clients you get on year over year revenue, um, it, it, it's a snowball, but it worked, um, where, you know, you yeah. got somebody that's a, a seed funded. I know another friend that's seed funded and he, you know, gave up uh, quite a bit, I'd imagine, of the company. Um, but in in a year, um, they're landing Fortune 100s and, you know, they, they're getting all kinds of business and and is, yeah. hey, do I own 100% of this business? And yeah, we've got 100 clients or do I own, you know, 25% of this business, but we've got uh, 10 times the revenue. So. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it depends on what your goals are, what your strategy, who your target is and, and everything else. There's so many different exactly. variables that, that come into play. Exactly. And, you know, for me on that standpoint with Bug Crowd, because it's, you know, in terms of how things have grown and all that kind of stuff, like the, the, the math has worked out there um, to the mission thing, really like the, the big driver for me was to start a revolution in a sense. It's like, I, I want this to become normal. Like it, it's been straining, you know, the idea of security research as being productive contributors to everyone's safety, you know, for, for developers to realize like, I'm not perfect and that's okay. How am I going to get feedback on that so I can improve um, and to keep my users secure regardless of where it comes from? Like all of these different ideas that, you know, still have a ways to go in 2021, but were completely like, you know, on another planet uh, back in 2012, 2013. Like my core goal was to start a revolution, like push a snowball down a hill that would just keep going. Um, and I feel like we've we've you know basically achieved that at this point, which is great. Um, that was really a lot of the the motivation for for you know getting funding and just moving at a million miles an hour from the get go. Part of it was to build a business that was viable, you know, keep the lights on, all the stuff we talked about before. But also, it's like this is a pretty audacious goal. Um, you know, how do we make sure that we hit it? Because if we don't, then what are we doing? Like, just do something else that will actually work. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really it's a it's a good one. I think um, probably the other thing I'd say about venture for for you know listeners that are in cybersecurity, like we have a seat at the table now. Uh, you know, the other thing that was different in in twenty twenty twelve is that no one really cared uh, about cybersecurity in the way that they do today, right? Like you go to, you know, Thanksgiving and, oh, did you hear about that hack? And like, how do I protect my password? And rah, rah, rah. that wasn't true, um, you know, nine or 10 years ago. So we're, we're in this place now where, you know, the relevance of cybersecurity to just life um, is pretty obvious to most people. And like, we're the experts. We're, we're the ones at the, the, the bleeding edge of, you know, figuring out how that stuff works. That buys us a seat at the table. Um, so, you know, for, for people that are thinking about entrepreneurship, thinking about stepping out, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, a, a bell that I ring um, consistently around just like get going. Like there's never the right time to start. Um, but also with respect to venture and different things like that, it looks like this very kind of mystical, you know, black box that you throw pitch decks at and one day a check spits out and then you're on Shark Tank or TechCrunch or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's not it's actually it's just another business like you're just literally learning the rules of their game so that you can find a way to partner um so they can help you do your thing if you can figure that part out 
then it's just a, a normal part of how you operate. And you know, by the way, hackers are pretty good at that, right? It's just like you know, rocking up to a to a new target for the first time. How does this thing work? I'm here. I want to be there. There's all this crap in my way, um, and here's the limited set of tools I've got to get to there. It's the same mental model, I think. Um, so yeah, so it's my soapbox on entrepreneurship <laughs> and cyber. I get, no, I get it's, kind of it's great. <laughs> so if you could give, uh, you know, one piece of advice to somebody who's listening in the sense that they, they want to be that lever, they want to be the entrepreneur, um, you know, they've, they've done their basic research, they've got, you know, spousal approval, they've got their, their funds together, they're not worried there. What would, what would be, you know, a lesson learned or a piece of advice that you could share with somebody that, uh, you know, would be of value? Yeah. Um, gratitude is the force multiplier. So there's all these people that come along, you know, alongside you along the way. Uh, yeah. Even, like I'm you know, grateful for the opportunity to have a chat now with, with you, right? Like I'm on your show, you're getting something out of this. I'm getting the opportunity to connect and, and have this conversation. There's all of these different examples of that that happen along the way. And I think taking the time to step back, even though it's, you know, peaks and lows and all these different things, and it's moving at a million miles an hour to stop and be grateful to, to the people that, that come along and do that. Yeah. You know, even if they're jerks, because like some of the best lessons I think get taught by people that, you know, you probably wouldn't go back in history and say, I really like that guy. Um, but you learn stuff from it that becomes formative and how you operate in the future. And that's, that's how you, that's how you grow, right? Like we can be very good at the things that we're good at, but then there's everything else. And those gaps are ultimately filled by, you know, the people that we surround ourselves with. So I think gratitude is a really important key um, to, to unlocking that. Um, and it's an easy one to forget too. Like you get busy, you get stressed, you get whatever else, like as a, as a thing that you remind yourself to do as you go along, I think that's a really powerful idea. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great answer in the sense that like, you have to be thankful for the people that you meet, um, you know, but I'm, I'm equal as thankful as like you mentioned is the people that are jerks, the people that tell you, you know, this is a stupid idea. You're not going to make it. That's more motivating yeah. than anything else. Um, and, you know, it, it comes down to um, you never know what a relationship's going to turn into or how a seed that you plant or, you know, that person that you meet and, and shake their hand, who they might be in 10 years. Uh, or, you know, what opportunities they might have for you, what opportunities you might have for them. So, um, yeah, yeah, every every interaction well, that you well, have. Well, well, the, well, the fact that in the argument you're having, you know, you might look back on that in five years and realize, oh, you, you're actually right. Like <laughs> yeah. Maybe the timing of that conversation was wrong, but I kept that in mind and it's actually influenced what I've done. And as it turns out, you were right. You were just ahead of your time. You reach back out to that person and say, thank you. Like that's i mean apart from it's kind of just fun too so there is that um <laughs> but I, but i think you know this this whole idea of just being able to unlock humility like you know cyber mentor you know i i love um i think mentorship's one of the most underrated um kind of enablers of of impacts period like especially in entrepreneurship but i think that's just generally true and and really you know to to be able to take that kind of input and, and use it um, whilst retaining your sense of what you want to get done. You know, it, it requires humility um, and humility in and of itself is, is a 
difficult thing to tell people to just do or be, right? Sure. So this is why I go to gratitude. Gratitude is super practical. It's easy to remember. It's easy to do. Like you can recognize it. And to me, it kind of unlocks this, this you know, basis of like a humble approach to, you know, the things that you're like, you know, if, if I go to the mat with you on these three things, I'm going to win. But then there's everything else. So if you can help me with that stuff, that would be great. Um, keeping that whole idea open as you, as you progress and especially as things start to succeed. Cause you know, and I mentioned this before it gets, it gets heady. Um, it gets exciting. You know, you can get wrapped up in like feeling like you're God's gift to everything. <laughs> um, I think patting yourself on the back is, is a good thing, but you know, reminding yourself that you don't, yeah, you, you only know what you know. Um, and, and really it's your team and your community and the people that surround you as, as mentors and facilitators, they're the ones that are going to unlock what you're capable of. So like as practical and as like, you know, kind of standard operating procedures, you can make that, I think the better. That's awesome. Yeah. I 100% agree there. Um, it, getting, getting towards the end of time, anything that uh, you're up to, anything you want to plug any? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as always, you know, bug crowds, I think this kind of, um, you know, I, I covered this off. We, we didn't start the company to be a bug bounty company. Like the, the market didn't have a bug bounty problem. It had a, I need to outsmart the adversary problem. And bug bounties were the expression of that at the time. Like bug bounty as a concept caught a pretty massive tailwind. And that was actually one of the things that kind of, oh, now we're hanging onto the back of this because it's just off rolling down the hill now. Um, but you know what we've been doing with bug crowd, you know, ever since the get go is figuring out how many different ways can we connect, you know, the latent potential of, of the research community and everyone who wants to be a part of that with this, you know, genomous, um, very relevant and growing problem of, of cybersecurity defense. That looks like pen test. It looks like, you know, attack surface management. It looks like VDP. It looks like proper bug bounty in the way that listeners would probably think of that. And we're going to be adding more and more of those things over time as well. So signing up for Bug Crowd, it's bugcrowd.com slash try hyphen bug crowd. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's definitely the plug for folks that want to either participate as a hunter or look at what we're doing there as a potential solution for their organization. Um, the other one is Disclose.io, which is really kind of a passion project that I've run um, or, or been a part of on the side for probably six years now. Uh, the goal of that is really just to, you know, change the the law. Um, this shouldn't be illegal by default. I think if you use a computer to commit a crime, then you've committed a crime, and and there should be laws that that you know provide recourse for that. I think the idea of um, being able to do you know naughty things to a computer in the first place being inherently illegal is is really holding the internet back, and and Disclose.io really is on a mission to change that. So that's just disclose.io. It's an open source project. We're actually in the process of, um, of going through 501c3 uh, certification, which is kind of cool. Um, and you know, people that want to like figure out what we're doing over there, figure out how they can contribute, you know, figure out if, if just literally aligning their legal language in their VDP, if you happen to run one or be responsible for one, to language that makes it safe for folks that are operating in good faith to do their thing and to help you um, and kind of normalize that idea across the internet in the process. That's, that's the other, the other big thing to plug. Yeah. I think that's a, such a great idea too. And I, I heard about it maybe like three years ago, I was at a conference and 
uh, Chloe Mistagi was there presenting and she was giving out the, uh, you know, bug crowd stickers. And I was really new and, and she gave out a disclose IO sticker. And, um, you know, it, like, you see it, uh, you see it on, on Twitter a lot. Like, does anybody know anybody at this company or, you know, and like yeah. you see the, the negative press with like the, the AT&T IDOR and like the, the things where people could go to jail for, for hacking yep. into a company and not having the right resources or companies taking the wrong approach. Oh, yeah. 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 So and companies well, taking well, the wrong well, approach. Companies, companies using, you know, I, I think one of the things that still happens a lot is companies using this, this backdrop of, no, you're a naughty hacker person. Um, I'm going to layer up and, and, and provide, you know, legal pressure to make you go away. Yeah. You know, mostly kind of triggered by the fact that they don't like what they're being told. So it's not so much you've done an illegal thing or whatever else. It's like, ah, this is, you just called my baby ugly. Like, I don't like that. Um, stop it. Yeah. You know, like the, the law shouldn't be a tool that's available for that. That's a, that's a business problem, not a legal one. So yeah. I feel like you know, there's some think, sort of, might... go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just saying, I feel like there's some sort of Streisand effect there too. When you have that kind of negative press, you're just attracting the wrong, you know, the wrong kind of people. And this is the beauty of it. I think it's becoming, yeah, it's another one of those snowballs. I think it, it's a thing that like the more people do it well, the more people will want to do it well. Um, and the more obvious like doing it badly becomes at that point, which is to your point around Streisand effect. Um, I feel like that snowball is running down the hill. Like a lot of what Disclose I was trying to do aside from like push that snowball is to try to steer it in the right direction as well. Like how can we make this as, as standardized as you know easy for you know people coming in from india for example who don't have english as a first language and and you know are presented with this wall of legal text like that's just a bad solution for them so how do we do better like how, how can we make stuff um as easy and as standardized to follow and really like the core of it is like the internet's immune system you know how do we standardize and promote that in a way that, that makes it as functional as it can possibly be yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I've been a fan ever since uh, I met Chloe, and I think it's a great project. That's I'm good. full full backer of it. Thank so, Appreciate well, sir, it. I will give you the rest of your your Saturday back. Uh, I do appreciate your time and, and uh, hanging out with me today and, and chatting. It's been uh, you know it's been eye opening. It's great to, to have a conversation. I, I think you're a you know really a deep thinker, and it, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody on you know kind of that level. So I appreciate you being here. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I really appreciate the invite on it. Likewise, like it's it's one of those ones where it's like, I can't believe we haven't really because we've we've met and and exchanged briefly at different points of time in the past, but to sit down yeah. and just get to jam. Um, I've really enjoyed that too. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that.